Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show that mostly is about New York City's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most programs, like today, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current energy, texture, and vibe, what makes that New York neighborhood special. And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood, but that's part of our fabric. In the past, we've covered a history of U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York, the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, which actually was its own city until about the turn of the last century, the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York. Uh, We had several special episodes during Stonewall 50, and we've also gone as far as exploring the history of bicycles and cycling, which had been in New York for 200 years, by the way. In the future, we'll journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast, and you can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and there are other podcast services, some of which I'm not even aware of, but I know the podcasts have been appearing on them. And today we're going to focus on a neighborhood that's actually in Manhattan, but probably one of the borough's best-kept secrets, Roosevelt Island, which sits in the middle of the East River between Queens and Manhattan, but is part of the borough of Manhattan. Our first guest is a regular on Rediscovering New York, Kevin Draper of New York Historical Tours. Kevin is sought-after New York City historian, and he's co-founder of New York Historical Tours. Kevin's an impassioned native New Yorker, and he actively brings to life the incredible and inspiring stories that have made New York the most exciting and influential city in the world. For over 10 years, Kevin has provided top-rated first-class tours and New York experiences to locals and and visitors from all over the globe, And by coincidence, just a couple of days ago, he gave a tour of, can you guess? Yes, Roosevelt Island. His dynamic knowledge, professionalism, and gift for storytelling have awarded him consistent five-star reviews, TripAdvisor's Certificate of Excellence year after year, and won the accolades of the most discriminating clientele. Kevin has led historical talks and lectures for top universities and Fortune 500 companies and is a respected historical consultant for major media and publications, including CBS, ABC, Bloomberg, The Times, it's the New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Kevin, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. It's great. Good to see you again. You're a native New Yorker. What part of our metropolitan area are you from? Well, originally I grew up on Long Island as a kid, um, but basically everybody from Long Island, their parents or grandparents were from Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx. So it's almost like an extension of the city, I think, in a way, most of us on Long Island. And well, that's why I say people who are from you know, New Jersey, Westchester, we're all New Yorkers. Yeah, it really, we are in a way. It's almost like the sixth borough, I think, Long Island, so especially Nassau County. So yeah, that's where I grew up on Long Island, but I spent my entire childhood coming into the city constantly. And how, what inspired you to get into the business of illuminating and entertaining people about New York and its history? So literally as a kid growing up, my parents would bring me into the city, going to museums or wherever, Lincoln Center or wherever it may be, Times Square. I mean, that, my, my head used to spin in Times Square in the 70s. I couldn't believe what a place that was. And I was just a kid. But the point is, I started to get a real interest in the city. So I started studying it, reading about it, watching documentaries about it as a kid, really, in grammar school, in junior high, high school. I went into a completely different business uh, in my 20s and in my 30s. But I always had New York City as a passion. Again, I always kept reading about it and doing research about New York. And I really wondered, like, wow, can I make a career out of this? Like, can I I be a historian and and focus on New York City history and actually make a career out of it? And came up with the idea of starting a tour company also. So I kind of do the two things as an historian and the tour company. Um, So that's basically how it happened. It just was literally just a passion for the history of New York and wanting to tell these stories. Well, Roosevelt Island, um, most New Yorkers have not been to Roosevelt Island, um, unfortunately. Uh, it seems like it's a little island in the middle of the East River in a city of islands. We, you know, our city is a city of islands with the exception of the Bronx, which is a part of a peninsula. Uh, geographically, what is Roosevelt Island like? Where is it? How, how big is it? So it's, uh, you, people would say the East River, but it's actual tidal estuary. 
So it's not actually a river, but we'll just call it the East River just so people don't get confused. Um, so it would be in the East River. Um, it's 153 acres. It's about two miles long, about 800 feet wide. So if you can imagine, you can lay the Empire State Building down and it would kind of stick out both sides of the island. So its dimensions are almost like a barrier island, even though it's not a barrier Kind island. of, yeah. And if, if you're in Manhattan or you know New York City, to get the idea of where what I'm talking about, it's about from about 46th Street. If you're on the south end of the island, looking over towards Manhattan, it's about 46th Street up to about 85th Street in Manhattan. So that's about two miles long. What was the earliest history of Roosevelt Island when New York was a Dutch colony and even before? And of course, it wasn't called Roosevelt Island, uh, even though, believe it or not, some of the Roosevelts in their name actually were from, were from the Netherlands. So Roosevelt is a Dutch name, but that wasn't the name of the island back in Dutch times. No, actually, when the Dutch originally came and settled this area um, 1620s, you know, it's most famous, people will say New Amsterdam, which is basically from the very edge, the south edge of Manhattan, up to about where Wall Street is today, which really was a wall that the Dutch built. So that was New Amsterdam. But they also had settled people, some people had settled over, settled over in what would become Brooklyn, and they named it. And if there was others that settled up in northern Manhattan, and they would name that Harlem after a town in the Netherlands. And then there was uh, some people, this gentleman named Fan Twiller, who was on Roosevelt Island. So it's one of the four places that they were Dutch settlers, so to speak. He was a past, He was a governor of, of New Amsterdam, wasn't he, or of New, uh, New Netherlands? For a short period, yeah, yeah. They had quite a few of them. I and mean, Peter Stuyvesant's probably the fa- most famous because he actually kind of got everything back into shape. Um, but shortly after that, by the 1660s, when the British took over New York without a fight, by the way, um, the Dutch agreed to sort of give it up. And sort of the agreement was that they could stay and continue to do business because the British weren't fools. They understood that this was a successful colony. So they let the, the Dutch stay. And it's funny, later on, when you mentioned when the island eventually becomes Roosevelt Island, one of those families that were here when the British were taking over was the Roosevelts. So if the British had, would have done what they normally would do when they take over an area where they just basically kick the people out and take it over, the Roosevelts would have gone back to the Netherlands. So it's kind of interesting how we came, we came so close to having, not having Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, so the person that took it over when the British took over is a guy named Captain Manning, and he would rename the island Manning Island. Then his son-in-law would take over, eventually be given the island, um, and he was Blackwell. So it would be the son-in-law, and then he named it Blackwell Island. That name would stay all throughout the 1800s when we get into the story a little more, so it would stay that way all the way to the early 20s mm. when it was known as Welfare Island. And then finally in the 1970s, they change it to what we know now, Roosevelt Island. Actually, I'm old enough to remember when they uh, not only changed the name to Roosevelt Island, but I remember the day when uh, James Roosevelt, uh, FDR's oldest son, he was there for the uh, actual uh, official naming of the renaming of the island. Um, I'm curious, did the island have any significant history during the American Revolution? Um, I gave a, I hosted a tour of... um, uh, Brooklyn Heights uh, a couple of days ago. While you were in Roosevelt Island, I was in the Heights of Brooklyn. And, uh, of course, you know, one of the, the probably the largest battle of the Revolution was fought uh, uh, in Brooklyn. It actually was the largest battle, yes. Mm-hmm. Did anything happen on Roosevelt Island during the Revolution? Or did, was it not, just... Uh, not really. I mean, basically, when we... Lo- when I'm going to say we, because I said the Americans lost um, to the British at the Battle of Brooklyn, or some people call it the Battle of Long Island, the same thing. Uh, they invaded Manhattan, basically where Kipps Bay is today. And they were sort of chasing after Washington. And they did send some troops up to what would be Roosevelt Island, only because um, strategically it was in a good spot um, to help protect ships going up and down that the East River. Um, but nothing, nothing significant like any big battles or anything like that now. Mm. Well, of course, one of the oldest residential buildings in the city is on Roosevelt Island. And that's um, yes, actually they, Blackwell's house. Yes. Mm. Six oldest house in all five boroughs. The... It's a very unusual neighborhood because uh, the city owned all the land. How did, how did New York City end up acquiring Roosevelt Island? So, lock, lock, stock, and barrel, well, which is what, it, it, it's what happened. I mean, to put it honestly, when you look at um, about 1800, the, the population of the city was um, about... 30,000, 40,000 people. And that would have been Manhattan at that point. Manhattan at that point, right. So... As the 18, 
hundreds progress, you're going to have it's going to go up to a million, a million and a half, two million. Um, you're up to almost four million by the 1900. So the city knew that already in 1800 that it was quickly growing and growing and growing. And to put it bluntly, the idea was: Do we really want to use this valuable land here in New York City to build places to keep? Now these are their words, not mine, but the undesirables. So the idea is: You know, do we really want to put a lot of jails here? What will become, um, will we consider insane asylums? Do we really want to do that? So there was this thought that where can we where can we put these places? So it was actually Peter Cooper, who he himself he could probably do a whole show, an entire show on Peter Cooper. That's a really good idea. Actually. Yeah, that's <laughs> that because there's so much history with Peter Cooper and Cooper Union that would actually should mark that one down. That's a good one, Peter yep. Cooper. Uh, he actually helped negotiate the deal, and they actually signed the paperwork. Um, at the Blackwell House. Ah. So it was Peter Coop that helped. So basically it was the city was just looking for a place to sort of have all these, keep all these places in one spot. And of course, you know, Roosevelt Island has a long history of institutions. Um, when was, let's start out with the prisons. When was the first penitentiary opened on the island? It wasn't soon after the purchase. So you're thinking this is about 1825. So it wasn't much long after that. I mean, almost immediately they started building the complexes there because the city was expanding that fast. I mean, there, there were there were literally days which Ellis Island was not, we weren't using Ellis Island yet. Everything was coming in through Castle Clinton. And, you know, you'd have thousands, several thousands people a day coming into New York City. And you got to keep in mind, most buildings are only two or three stories high. So thousands of people are coming in every single day. So almost immediately they were building uh, buildings on the island. Mm. Well, interesting. One thing I read, very interesting, uh, a graph case of a New York State Supreme Court judge who released almost 40 prisoners from the prison. His, the, his name was George Barnard, I think. Uh, any relation to Barnard College, that guy, or not? That's a good question. I have to uh, double-check that one. I, okay. don't, I don't think so. Well, I don't like to stump my <laughs> guest. When, when, <laughs> when, did, when did the penitentiary finally close? So most of the, the idea was this the idea of out of sight, out of mind was uh, a big question of the day of, you know, should we have these prisons and stuff where on islands, which by the way, we're having the same debate today about Rikers Island, this idea of having things out of sight, out of mind. So really by the time we get into the 20th century is when most of these institutions were being shut down and, and a lot of the um, facilities were being moved over to places, say like um, Bellevue, for instance, they were starting to pick up a lot of what was originally on Roosevelt Island. Mm -hmm. So by the, by the time you get into the 20th century, most of these places are starting to close down. I mean, the hospitals and stuff, I mean, there's still complexes there today. But uh, by, as we get into the 20th century is when most of the places are going to be closed down. Um, but the penitentiary, uh, did, it, did it closing permanently have, have any overlap with when Rikers Island opened? Um, no, because there was other jails in the city, like the tombs and a few other places. So, I mean, they were already scattering people around to that point. Hmm. Okay, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about Roosevelt Island, but uh, significantly, I want to spend some time talking about the lunatic asylum and a very famous person who brought a lot of social change to New York and our institutions. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc.
Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York, and our first guest, Kevin Draper of New York Historical Tours. Kevin, tell us a little bit about your company and about the tours that you give. So, New York Historical Tours, we, um, we offer tours in all five boroughs, actually. Um, and we cover the history from literally from the period of the Dutch and, and the Native American Indians all the way up to today and even to tomorrow. And what I mean by that is, like, we've been given tours of Hudson Yards or around it while it was being built and we're explaining what's happening. So it's not just about things that are happening in the past. We're also trying to explain to people what's happening now and what's coming up soon. soon. Um, and most of the tours are led by people like myself, historians. Um, I'm one of the founders of the company, so everyone we hire, we, we train them the way we want them to do the tours. And um, we do everything, school groups, corporate groups, private tours, group tours, school groups, everything. And if people want to find out about your tours, they can reach you at? Yeah, if you go to NewYorkHistoricalTours.com, that'll take you right to the website, and all the information is right there. Do you have any interesting tours coming up in the next couple of weeks? Well, you must. What interesting tours do you have coming up well, in the next couple I of mean, weeks? Well, one of our popular ones now is the Gilded Age Tour, which we've been doing actually for years. And that really that covers the period from after the Civil War up to war, war, end of World War One. And for anybody that likes the show Downton Abbey... Um, Julian Fellows, who brought that show to an end, actually, is doing a show now. He brought that show to an end purposely to do a show called The Gilded Age, which is going to focus on New York and the other part of the story. And HBO picked it up. And the whole big thing with that is it's supposed to replace Game of Thrones. So you're going to be hearing a lot in the news about The Gilded Age, Gilded Age, Gilded Age, Gilded Age. And that's something we've been doing for a while. So that's a very interesting tour. Wow. You know, I love tours. Um, uh, just last night I went on a tour. I was uh, talking to our second guest before in our unofficial green room about a tour I went on with the Brooklyn Historical Society mm-hmm. about uh, Walt Whitman and crossing oh, yeah. the Brooklyn Ferry. Mm-hmm. I have not been on one of your tours yet. I have to do that. At any time, of course. Um, let's go back to Roosevelt Island. Very, very uh, important part of, of its history and the happenings around it were the lunatic asylum that mm-hmm. was built. When was it built originally? I don't want to give you the wrong date, but it would have been in the mid-1800s when it was built. Soon after, like I said, soon after when the deal was made, I mean, these buildings were made pretty quick. 1840s, 1850s is when things were getting built, 1880s. We're going to talk about a, a famous journalist in, in a minute or two, but uh, I want to fir- uh, first talk about Charles Dickens. He visited the asylum in the 1840s. Yes. You know, I. it's funny. One of the things we talk about, um, we're, most historians, one of the, some of the first slums in the world were actually in New York City. It would be known as the Five Points. Uh, Gangs of New York was a movie made about that period of time. And I've had uh, debates with English historians that study London and history, and they'll always point and say, no, 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 the first slums were in London. They were in London. Um, and I'll always point out Charles Dickens, because when he came to visit New York... And when he went to Roosevelt Island, and when he also had seen uh, the Five Points, he had said that it makes their slums almost look like luxury living. So that gives you a, a little idea of how, how what his mindset was when he got here. He was pretty shocked at what he had seen at Roosevelt Island mm-hmm. and, in, and the Five Points. I always like to connect that because, again, he, he was shocked. How did he get access to uh, the lunatic asylum? You would imagine that, as we'll talk about with, with uh, Nellie Bly in a minute, that, that they wouldn't be eager to say, oh, come on in, Mr. Dickens. Come have a look at uh, the way that people are being treated. Well, in this, there's in a couple place. of things. One, I mean, the media was nothing like it is today. I mean, forgetting TV and everything else. I mean, the, the amount of journalists or what they would actually cover in stories um, would not be what you think. The idea of an investigative journalist until people like Nellie Bly, which we'll get that in a minute, most people really didn't do stories about that. And a lot of people didn't want to rock the boat. So the idea of going after the city government or the state government or going after the police force or going after the mayor, people just wouldn't go there. Um, And then when you would go to a place, whether it was a prison or an insane asylum, they'd want to put their best face on. So, of course, they're going to show you the cleanest room and they're going to try to, you know, spruce it up a little bit. So, But the main thing was they just really wouldn't report on it. Which takes us to Nellie Bly. Um, 
what took her to the prison, and how did she? Well, do you want to talk about the? Uh, well, that, lot, some people may not know about exactly what what she did and, and what her journey was. In, in well, it ties right in with Joseph Pulitzer, which we have the Pulitzer Prize. It was he started that? Um, so he was one of really the first to his paper to go after corruption in the city, to do stories about the plight of factory workers. Um, to go after corrupt politicians. Like I said, nobody would do that before. So, and he was the first. I mean, he's really important. I mean, I'll be honest with you, that's another show you could do because Joseph Pulitzer, just the media at the time, how drastically things changed. So mm -hmm. this idea of an, an investigative journalist. So Nellie Bly had come in, which, by the way, there were very few, if any, I don't think any, really, women in, in journalism. So she approached him about doing a story about perhaps getting, you know, institutionalized and then can write about it. So he thought it was a great idea. So they real so she really did sort of fake being well crazy or insane and went through the whole process of getting arrested and booked and being sent off to uh, the insane asylum. And she had to practice. I I read that in, in order to be convincingly crazy. A absolutely. Right. Um, now, definitely, she had actually to, to get actually get arrested and get committed. And then when she did get there, and this is something that some people will talk about because there, it is, she did write about this, but, you know, when she got there, she kind of realized, I mean, I might have made a mistake because it really was pretty horrific. Um, and one of the stories go, and I've read this in a few places, and I think it's pretty accurate, that one of the, when she was trying to explain to the guards who she was and what they were trying to do, that he had mentioned that, that don't worry about it, everything is fine because your cellmate is actually the mayor's wife. So you can talk to her. Maybe she can get you out. And if that doesn't work, the president's wife is here, too. So basically, they didn't believe her. <laughs> so and then she realized, boy, I'm in big trouble. And as the days went by, Joseph Pulitzer, too, was getting nervous because he was kind of like, well, what, she's, she's not writing back to me. Well, what's going on? Um, so he had to pull a lot of strings. It was very difficult to actually get her to get sprung out of there. Wow. What was the reaction to her reporting by the general public? people were shocked. I mean, she, one of the things why she was such a good writer, she, she, she was really able to describe in detail. Because um, unlike, say, someone like Jacob Reese, who was active at this time, who would take photographs of things, um, for her, well, obviously she couldn't sneak a camera in there, so she wasn't able to get pictures. So for her to describe that in words, that people could really picture what it looked like, it was scandalous. And people read a lot in those days. That was a way that people read the oh, news. Oh, yeah. The, oh, the newspapers at the time. I mean, I mean, the numbers, you know, whatever, 22 or something. And not only that, I and mean, you can imagine today they had, like, you know, morning edition, afternoon edition. A lot of times they have a night edition. You have three. One paper might put out three editions in one day. So, yeah, a lot of people did. And people were horrified by it. Mm. Did Bly's reporting result in any changes to the way that, that people in asylums were treated, not only in New York, but across, outside? Absolutely. I mean, it would start it on the road. I mean, it would still take a long time, and really not until you get well into the middle of the 20th century. And some might even say today that the conditions aren't too good in, in institutions in general, like, say, nursing homes and stuff. I mean, you read stories all the time about the conditions there. But at least it brought it to the public's attention that... You know, again, this idea of out of sight and out of mind is just not a good idea. The idea of doing inspections, because they didn't do that back then. So mm -hmm. the idea of having, you know, maybe city officials just show up somewhere to do an inspection. So, Well, one um, silver lining, if you could call it that, is one of the great pieces of architecture on Roosevelt Island is the Octagon, which was part of the Lunatic Asylum. Uh, which is One of six landmarks, by the way. There are six landmarks on the island, and that's one. Wow. Well, another one was, I'm not, actually, I'm not sure if it's a landmark, but it's, a, it's an incredible structure, uh, and it was uh, designed and built by the same architect who built St. Patrick's Cathedral, and that was a smallpox hospital. Um, is that landmarked? Yes. It's actually the only landmarked ruin in the five boroughs, right? So if you go, to, you go to Rome, there are ruins everywhere that are landmarked, but the only ruins that we have in the five boroughs that actually is landmarked is is the smallpox hospital. So, and they've stabilized it, too. I mean, it looks like it's still falling apart, but it's not. They've stabilized it. That's the way it's going to look. Um, and Renwick Jr. also had a hand in the lighthouse also on the island, which is one of the six landmarks. How did a lighthouse end up being built on this island? It's with, with such thin channels, and you, know, you can see everything. Uh, it's actually one of the strongest natural currents in the United States, um, so much so that 
when you're coming in from, say, Long Island Sound, it's known as Hell's Gate. And so it's one of the roughest, strongest currents, I mean, in the whole country, if you can imagine that. Um, it's so much so that even today with all the big yachts and all the technology and radar systems and all that, you're not allowed to go through certain parts without a pilot boat. So someone actually has to pilot you through there. So there used to be a lot of shipwrecks in that area hitting the island. Wow. Yeah, because that's how bad it was, especially at night, because the currents are so strong. So that's why they had to have that. Hmm. Well, let's, let's fast forward a little bit and talk about the Queensboro Bridge. Um, how did that aid the introduction of vehicle transport to the island that didn't require taking a ferry? Well, one of the things they did back then, I mean, the city itself was very forward thinking, which I think we need a little bit more of today, where that you would really plan for the future. You were looking 10, 20, 30, 50 years ahead. So when they built the Queensboro Bridge, which was the official name, now it's, I guess, the Ed Koch Bridge. Simon and Garfunkel will call it the (laughs) 59th Street Bridge, so call it whatever you want, but... Queensboro Bridges was the one I'm always thinking of. Feeling groovy regardless yeah. of what, what, what you call it. Exactly. So they, the city built that essentially to nowhere. There was nothing out there. I mean, when they built that bridge and the roads that would lead from it out into Queens, there was really nothing out there, just some scattered farms. The thought was if you built that road out and then eventually also subways, then the developers will come, then the developers will build. Um, so that would change Queens... And then by the 1950s, they finally had put a bridge to connect Queens to the island. So if you want to get to um, Roosevelt Island by car, especially if you live in Manhattan, you have to physically go over the Queensboro Bridge and then come around to get on the island. And you can drive on the island. And people who live on the island, some people actually do own vehicles and they can park them and drive them around. I um, want to fast forward a little bit to uh, the beginnings of the Roosevelt Island we know today. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the uh, institutions, the, the, uh, the penitentiary was closed in the right. 30s, I think. The, uh, uh, the asylum was closed. And then a lot of the health care facilities uh, began to close. Uh, but I do want to point out, too, that um, one of the oldest schools of nursing in the United States was on Roosevelt Island, was founded on Roosevelt Island. Um, Which was in the smallpox hospital. I think that's where, that's where it was eventually. Oh, wow. When they came up with a, the, uh, well, cure, vaccine for the smallpox, the hospital, that hospital was turned into that nursing hospital. How did, what was the start of uh, the, uh, the development that led to the Roosevelt Island that we see today from a place of institutions to a place where people lived and, uh, as, as residents? I mean, a lot of it being so close to Manhattan. And the one thing that people always talk about today, 2019, is this you know, need for housing, need for housing. That's nothing new. They've been saying that since literally the colonial days when the British were here. The people were always complaining we need more housing. So the idea that when they were going to be tearing down these buildings that they could start from scratch and not just build a building but like a town, you know, literally with a main street and, and start from scratch. Um, in so fact, Main Street in Manhattan is on Roosevelt Island. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. That's actually right. Yeah, right, exactly. So this idea of being able to start from scratch and, you know, to have a school and have a lot, one library and have the school from grammar school up through high school and have a real sense of community, have a small town feel, yet be so connected to the city, it was a very unique opportunity to do that. So with the state behind it and the city... That's what they've done. So they basically set out with this master plan, which a lot of it is in the center of the island. If you look at a lot of the brutalist architecture of the buildings, that's, the, that's what was built in the 1970s. Um, and, you know, mixed income housing and um, they put an AVAC system in and they, were, they had electric buses at the time. So it was a very um, experimental idea of what they were trying to do and it was unique because where else in the city can you get that much acreage where you could start from scratch right actually there's one of the neighborhood where you could battery park city which was uh created from nothing, nothing. and that was uh yes. I just did a video for it on one of my neighborhood tours and that was uh that was an urban planner's dream too it was yeah. nothing you could design even the width of the streets and the amount of light coming in from scratch and have what theoretically perhaps maybe limitless amounts of money you know what i mean when you have it as a government project you know you're not really watching the money <laughs> You know, Kevin, there's so much we can talk about, um, and our time is going to end shortly, but um, uh, we'll talk more about uh, the current Roosevelt Island with our next guest. But the one thing I do want to talk about is uh, how uh, Four Freedoms Park came to be. Four Freedoms Park, it, yes. it's, an, it's not a big park, but it's an extraordinary park, 
and it honors, in my mind, you're one of the greatest American presidents, uh, 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 FDR. Um, when did, how did that get concepted, and, and when did that? So, um, originally, um, Van Hoovel, Van Hoovel was his last name. He grew up in upstate New York during the Depression as a young kid. And when FDR was elected and all these programs that he put into effect, basically they were able to keep their house and keep their head above water, so to speak. So this kid idolized FDR. When the president died in his school, he was in high school, they took up a collection so he could take a bus down to go to the funeral. So he goes to Hyde Park to go to the funeral, but this is for the President of the United States. I mean, you have dignitaries coming from all over the world. So he just shows up thinking he's going to go in. And of course, when he gets there, they say, excuse me, you got to leave. You can't be here. He's walking away. He's basically going to head back to, to get back to the city, take a bus to go home, back upstate. He sees Eleanor Roosevelt. He get, goes up to her and quickly blabs out his story. She takes him by the hand and brings him into the funeral. Can you imagine? So imagine what imprint this has on this kid's head. Wow. Well, he grows up to be an ambassador. He's in, the, I think, the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration. I think he was ambassador for the UN. And he was the driving force back in the 1950s, 1960s, to do something for FDR because there was no proper memorial. The only thing we had for FDR was the FDR drive, right? And that's not exactly the greatest memorial. <laughs> the highway, <laughs> a highway, you know, it's like you don't want that. Well, Robert Moses might think it was the best memorial yeah, of someone. Yeah, he, he but, might, but. yeah. So to really cut this short here but so basically he was the driving force behind that and a guy named Louis Kahn one of the top architects in the world at the time he was employed during the depression from FDR money basically so he felt he wanted to do something so he became part of the project so they were through the state they were able to get the do the island name change they were going to get this monument built to Roosevelt they were supposed to start construction Louis Kahn is walking through Penn Station and drops dead of a heart attack. He actually had the plans in his briefcase. Wow. So obviously they take him to the hospital. He's dead on arrival. The plans just basically go into the archives. It's just forgotten about. But Van Hoovel never stopped. All throughout the 70s, all throughout the 80s, all throughout the 90s, he kept pushing and pushing and pushing to get this built. And finally in the 2000s, it was agreed upon. They were able to raise the funds they needed and they finally got it built. And Van Hoover was one of the men that were there to actually mm -hmm. cut the ribbon. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful place. The trip to Roosevelt Island is worth it just on its own, but you shouldn't just go out to Roosevelt Island if you've never been there just to see Four Freedoms Park. But it really is an extraordinary place and quite a monument to, to, uh, to FDR. And one last thing. Um, I don't have time to explain it all, but look up what Four Freedoms means. It's a speech that he gave. And Norman Rockwell was so inspired by it. His four most famous paintings are of the Four Freedoms. So if any of the listeners out there, just look up what the Four Freedoms speech is, and you'll understand the importance of that park. Oh, great. Kevin Draper, thank you so much for coming back and being our guest on Rediscovering New York. Absolutely. Our first, our first guest has been Kevin Draper, who's the uh, co-founder and director of New York Historical Tours. That's at www.newyorkhistoricaltours.com, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Kevin, thank you so much. We'll be back in a moment with our second guest. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m. we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. 
We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like us on Facebook, uh, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow me on Instagram. My handle is jeffgoodmannyc. If you have comments or questions or would like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Uh, one other thing, our show is about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate, but there is a really good one. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. You can listen to Vince's show live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. Our next guest is a longtime resident and devoted person who lives on Roosevelt Island, Janet Falk. Uh, Janet is a communications professional with more than 25 years experience in-house as a consultant and a public relations agency. As chief strategist of Falk Communications and Research, and research excuse me, she manages proactive media outreach and has secured placement of executives and events in local, national, and international print and broadcast media. Examples of Janet's work include articles in three hotel industry publications that generated more than 800 phone calls from hotel industry chief financial officers inquiring about a client's services. Attorneys, CPAs, business executives, consultants, and nonprofit leaders rely on her insight, strategy, and analysis. A longtime Roosevelt Island resident, the Roosevelt Island Historical Society is actually one of Janet's clients, and she volunteers to make Roosevelt Island a great place to live in her role as an elected representative of the Roosevelt Island Residents Association. And a hearty welcome to Janet Falk. Welcome to Rediscovering New York. Jeff, so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Are you originally from New York, Janet? I'm from Ardsley in Westchester County. I grew up there and then left town to go to college and go to graduate school. I moved back to New York in 1979 when my husband took a job here. Oh, great. When did you and your husband move to Roosevelt Island? And actually, um, more to the point, what brought you to Roosevelt Island? My husband works for New York University, and one of the perks of being on the faculty is you get to live in the faculty housing. But that housing is in short supply. So NYU bought a number of apartments on Roosevelt Island and invited their faculty and administrators to purchase these condo units. So we bought one of those condo units in 2008. Did they buy like floors or sections, or did they just buy uh, no? They're scattered. Or? They're scattered apartments of different sizes. We have a three-bedroom, and then there are two bedrooms, one bedrooms, and studios. How long have you been involved with the Roosevelt Islands Residents Association, and how did you get involved? With it? I, I'd say I've been involved perhaps uh, six years. Uh, what happened was uh, the representative from my particular district had stepped down, and there was a need for someone else to fill that slot. And my husband was already serving on the uh, Residents Association, so I decided to join him. I felt that it was a way that I could become involved in the community and be contributing. There are a lot of local issues that I wanted to see addressed. Well, you're really active in your community, and uh, you've kind of also been able to mix that on a professional level. And um, maybe I'm a little envious, but uh, one of your clients is the Roosevelt Island Historical Society. Um, as an old advertising and media professional uh, before I went into real estate and as someone who brings neighborhoods to life with people through my programming, um, I'd love to know, how did you get them as a client? Did you, were you involved in the, in the association with the society for a while? What, what inspired you to, to have to, 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 uh, I, to say, I had, I'm, your, I'm your communications firm? Right. Um, I attended some of their events. Uh, the society has two walking tours in the spring to uh, enjoy the magnolia blossoms at the north end of the island and the cherry trees which are at the southern end of the island and I had attended a number of the lectures I also uh, became friendly with the president of the Roosevelt Island Historical Society Judy Birdie who like the previous guest Kevin Draper leads tours around the island so that was part of my involvement um, also I saw it as a way to project to beyond Roosevelt Island, events that were taking place in the community. Hmm. 
Kevin talked uh, a lot about the history. Um, I'd like to talk about the, the island presently in its residential development. What are the different parts? Because it is, it, it is a finite place, but there are, there are distinct parts of the island from a residential standpoint. What are some of the parts of the island? Okay, uh, let's look at it chronologically. So in the middle are the four oldest buildings. And Kevin did mention the particular architectural style. There was actually a competition for different architects to contribute their plans for this planned community in the middle 70s. So that's why the four buildings are all done by individual architects and none of them resemble any of the others. So those are the four buildings in the center, which is the downtown commercial district. Then a little ways to the north is Manhattan Park. And then beyond that are some ball fields. And then beyond that is the Octagon, the building that you mentioned, which is an LEED building and has some interesting uh, facilities. There's tennis courts there, and there's a swimming pool. Um, the tennis courts are free to everyone. The swimming pool is for the residents there. Then below the central core of buildings that I mentioned, the four oldest buildings, is the section called Southtown. And that started out as uh, a cluster of three buildings and then another cluster of three buildings, which is where I live. Are those and the buildings by the tram? Uh, yes. Uh -huh. And then there's a, a third cluster of buildings that's under development now. One has been built, one is under construction, and there's going to be one more, and that will conclude the construction of the residential community. So you can see that there's a variety of buildings. Some are rentals, some are co-ops, some are condos, and they're spread uh, across the central part of Roosevelt Island. And then, of course, between the bridge and the southern part of the island and the old smallpox hospital, we have Cornell Tech, which is uh, Correct. quite a, an enormous undertaking, but really, mm -hmm. really beautiful the way it's going up, I think. Um, describe the vibe of Roosevelt Island. What is it that you like about living there? So I think was mentioned earlier, Roosevelt Island is a small town within the larger New York City metropolis. So there's one main street, which is called Main Street. There is another road called River Road in the Manhattan Park area. Uh, the speed limit is 15 miles an hour, so cars cannot go very fast. There are many ball fields, so that there's plenty of place for children to play. And we have a number of residents who are differently abled and who get around on wheelchairs so they can safely travel throughout the island. Now, Jeff, I'm going to ask you to do a little something with me. Put your two hands in front of you, palms up, okay? Now raise them up towards your face and put your two pinkies together. Now, this is the architectural landscape of most of Manhattan and most of New York City. You see how everything is all crowded together. Yes. Now, spread your hands apart the distance of your shoulders. This is the architectural landscape of Roosevelt Island. Every apartment building is freestanding. It does not overlap with another apartment building. So the architectural landscape of Roosevelt Island has a lot of light and air and space. So it's really a very different feel from any other neighborhood in New York. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. In fact, you know, we uh, talked a little bit, well, we mentioned uh, Battery Park City as having been uh, designed from the ground up. But one thing about Battery Park City that Roosevelt Island is different from is in Battery Park City, a lot of the buildings do abut each other. They are actually not physically connected through hallways, but they actually are right next to each other. And Roosevelt Island, the buildings are all freestanding. That's right. That's right. Um, and I would add also that because it is a, you know, contained neighborhood, I get to know a lot of my neighbors, and I'm always running into somebody that I know. And one thing you mentioned uh, when we talked before was that there were a lot of people who worked for the United Nations. Who lived That's in correct. So it's a very, very mm -hmm. much an international community. Right. One of the advantages now is we have the ferry that goes from Astoria to Roosevelt Island to Long, Long Island City and then to 34th Street and finally to Wall Street. And many people who work at the United Nations take the ferry. I, I was surprised to see that it was so popular, but in fact, it's much faster because otherwise you have to take the tram and then take the bus and you're stuck in traffic. But this way, on the ferry, it's really a short walk from 34th Street back up to the United Nations. Yes. 
All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Janet Falk, a longtime resident of Roosevelt Island. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our episode on Roosevelt Island. My second guest is Janet Falk, who's also the principal of Falk Communications and Research. Janet, tell us a little bit about your business and what you do. I'm a public relations and marketing communications professional, and I work with a variety of clients, principally attorneys, business owners, consultants, and uh, nonprofit organizations. And I do several things for them. I introduce them to reporters so that they can be seen in the media and attract new clients or advocate for their cause. I help them with their newsletters. I help them with their speeches for nonprofit organizations. I write articles for the journal at the fundraising gala. And I also write website content. So I can do a variety of writing of almost any kind of content for almost any kind of platform, almost any kind of audience. And full disclosure, Janet and I originally met a couple of years ago through our affiliation with the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you and find out more My about website your is Janet, J-A-N-E-T, L as love, Falk, F-A-L-K, JanetLFalk.com. Well, I like the L in that very much, as well as your name. Um, Getting back to the place where you live, um, aside from the obvious, like all the water and the East River rolling by and the views of Manhattan, what do you feel makes Roosevelt Island special and a special place to live? I, I like the fact that Roosevelt Island does have this small town community feel. Uh, one of the things that happened more than 40 years ago when the island was founded was that there was no Little League. There was no library. And so people had to roll up their sleeves and make it happen. And over the period of years, there have been a number of organizations that have come to pass and have served the community in a variety of ways. So the Roosevelt Island Historical Society is one example. Um, another example, which now is a dormant organization, is Roosevelt Island Community Literary Associates. When people first moved to Roosevelt Island, they came with all their books. Well, it turns out that their apartments were too small for some of their collection. And so many people gathered their extra books, and there were two residents of the island who created a volunteer community library. And this was staffed by local volunteers, and they had reading activities and circles for the children. And over time, this library grew and grew until eventually they sold the assets to the New York Public Library. And then there was a parade moving from the community room of Westview, which is one of the earlier buildings, down Main Street to the new facility 
which is in the Roosevelt Island, uh, 524 Main Street. And I should add that there's going to be a new building. They are redoing one of the existing buildings to accommodate an expanded library. So that's what's great about Roosevelt Island is that people roll up their sleeves and create uh, social and community-minded organizations. One thing I found really interesting in uh, being a cat owner, <laughs> a longtime cat owner, uh, really inspiring, is that you not only have a, a feral cat community on Roosevelt Island, but you also have a community of people who take care of feral cats. How did that all come about? How, did, how does that? I, I'm not acquainted with the history, but the name of the organization is Island Cats. And they do have a website, and they have their own fundraising activities, and people either uh, buy the food or they go down and distribute the food to the cats. There are two sanctuaries, one in South Point Park and one uh, further north in the area where the Garden Club has its plots. And uh, they find that uh, visitors to the island occasionally leave their cat and drive away. So when a new cat appears, um, the volunteers notice it, they catch it, they bring it to a vet who, uh, for a low or no fee, spays and neuters it so that we don't have the island overrun with cats. Oh, that's great. I've also heard that Roosevelt Island uh, can be a little bit of a hotbed of community activism. Uh, what was the Save the Post Office campaign about? Now, in uh, 2011, the U.S. Postmaster announced that more than 3,600 post offices were on a list and were subject to being closed. Uh, This was a terrible blow to Roosevelt Island because if we don't have a post office, then we have no place where we can buy stamps and mail our letters and packages. Uh, We would have to take a bus or a subway or a tram or drive our car off the island just to go to the post office. This is an an, an unforgivable tax. Especially in a city like New York that would be outrageous. Right. So uh, we organized a rally, and participants included our local congresswoman, uh, Carolyn Maloney, our local state senator, Jose Serrano, our then assembly member, Micah Kellner, and I was instrumental in attracting press attention so that we could raise the flag for Roosevelt Island to keep our post office, and we did. Wow, that must have given you a real sense of accomplishment uh, to, have, to have been instrumental in doing that. Uh, Roosevelt Island also has a cherry blossom festival. Correct. When is that? When does that take place? That takes place on a Saturday, uh, the third or fourth week in April. Uh, it's difficult to project when the cherry blossoms will go into bloom, but uh, we've been pretty accurate so far, and we've been running the cherry blossom festival for about ten years. Uh, it started out as a fundraiser for victims of the Japanese tsunami. And we were able to recruit professional musicians and dancers and performers to come to Roosevelt Island. Uh, Since then, the uh, event has taken place in different locations around Roosevelt Island, uh, but most recently seems to have settled at uh, FDR Memorial for Freedoms Park. So these performers come and they do traditional Japanese orchestra and uh, we have a demonstration of martial arts. And it's really a wonderful experience to see the community come together, whether it's local residents or people from the Japanese community in the metropolitan area, or just anyone who wants to get a dose of Japanese culture. And speaking of which, uh, it also piggybacks with the Japanese Cultural Arts Festival too, as well. It's is one that, and the it's, same. It's one and the same. Okay, okay, got it. Thank you. Um, is there anything that surprises you about Roosevelt Allen having lived there for 15 years? Whenever I give my business card to someone, Jeff, they look at it and they say, Main Street? There's a Main (laughs) Street in New York? And I say, yes, it's Roosevelt Island. Have you ever been there? And they say, oh, is that the one where you go on that thing? And then they point up to the sky. And I say, yes, the aerial tram. It's a fabulous four-minute ride with terrific views of the Upper East Side skyscrapers. Oh, it's amazing. It's one of the most exciting things to do in New York. And actually, if you have an unlimited Metro card, I think it's free. You can just swipe and get it. It's an easy transfer from the bus or the subway right at 59th and 2nd. And full disclosure, I've been on the tram a number of times, and I love taking it. The views are unsurpassable anywhere in New York. Um, All right, we're out of time. I wish we could uh, talk a little bit more. Our second guest has been Janet Falk, 
a longtime resident of Roosevelt Island and uh, principal of Falk Communications and Research. Janet, thank you so much for being on our show today. My pleasure, Jeff. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to Rediscovering New York. If you have questions or comments about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. I know it's original, but there you have it. You can also follow me on Instagram at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761 or, of course, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our Storier, excuse me, how could I forget that name? Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.